all the little kids dressed in pink, all the husbands dressed in pink. (laughs) This is nothing compared to what celebration in heaven will be. All we can do now is talk about and think about and ponder our risen Lord, and then we'll see him. Her name was Mary Magdalene, and her life was a, a hopeless wreck. She'd been given over to wickedness, given over to evil. She'd been oppressed and possessed by seven demons. She had a terrifying and a, a desperately dark existence. She was a slave of sin. She was a slave of Satan himself until that glorious day when Jesus came along. Jesus cast out the seven demons with the power of the Son of God. He saved Mary from her sins by forgiveness. And from then on, Mary followed Jesus. She literally went wherever he was. Luke chapter 8 tells us this. She went along with other women who had been saved and delivered by Jesus. But that was all over now. Those days were gone because he was dead. The light of the world had gone out. John chapter 20 records Mary Magdalene by herself weeping outside the tomb of Jesus, weeping for the one who had died to pay the penalty for her sins, weeping for the one who had taken her from darkness and transferred her to the kingdom of light. And it is the death of Christ, the suffering Savior, that we've been examining in Isaiah chapter 53. And if you have your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah 53. If you don't have one, that's fine. I'll read it to you. Isaiah chapter 53, really beginning in chapter 52, verse 13, is the the prophetic look forward at the suffering Savior written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And over the past weeks, we've been taking apart this passage by theme. And so far, we've considered in some previous messages the atonement of Christ. We've considered the sorrow of Christ. We've considered the justification of Christ. And then Friday evening on Good Friday, we looked more poignantly, at the death of Christ. We've read this passage in its entirety, every message. We're going to do that one last time today. Follow along with me, Isaiah 52, beginning of verse 13, and we'll read through all of chapter 53. Isaiah 52, beginning of verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is a depiction of suffering that is really unimaginable. And we could even categorize his suffering. There is the physical suffering of Christ. The, the, the physical suffering of crucifixion is really unparalleled in human experience. It is a human experience of death that is beyond words. There's the emotional suffering of being rejected and despised by the very people that he loved, the ones that he cared for, the ones he ministered to, the ones he was born among, and of certainly the feeling of rejection of his heavenly father when God no longer acted as father for a time but acted only as judge and poured the wrath of all the sin of all who would believe in Christ on Christ. And then, of course, there is that spiritual suffering of experiencing the wrath of God, which you deserve, which I deserve, which he did not deserve. And so physical suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, and countless believers. This is why we've read this every time we're in this text. Countless believers have wept through Isaiah 53. We've cried through it. Our Bibles are stained with the tears of our own sin when we read Isaiah 53. Because it should have been us. It should have been you. It should have been me. Because Jesus Christ received what we deserve according to the wrath of God. As we examined on Good Friday. But as we dry our tears. And as we try to grasp the depths of sorrow represented in the death of Jesus Christ. If we look now one last time at Isaiah 53. There's something unusual. There's something mysterious. There's something puzzling. There, there's something almost hidden here, something embedded in the text. These are descriptions of Jesus Christ. They're detailed descriptions, but they're not like a eulogy. They're not descriptions of someone who's dead. These are descriptions of someone who's very much alive. The results of the death of Christ are entrenched. They're implanted. They're embedded in this text as the cry of a victor. This isn't the idea of someone whom death has, has defeated. This is the cry of someone who has won. But Isaiah foretold this already. I, Isaiah 53 is dark and it's somber with the death of Christ, but it's also saturated in the resurrection of Christ. And there's all kinds of glorious 
revelations of his resurrection embedded in this text. And I'd like to show you eight of them. Eight revelations of the resurrected Jesus. The first resurrection, the first revelation, rather, of the risen Jesus we'll call the verification of Christ. The verification of Christ. And we've done most of this text already in previous messages, so we'll be going to just a few different little phrases here. The verification of Christ. This speaks of the idea of, is Christ who Scripture says he is? The Bible makes claims about Jesus. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in case there's any doubt as to who the Word is, 13 verses later, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so is he God? Can we verify the identity of Jesus Christ? Because everything hinges on this identity. Jesus told his disciples multiple times that he was going to be arrested, die, and be raised from the dead. Be arrested, die, be raised from the dead. Multiple times he told them this. Well, how does this happen? Well, resurrection from the dead can only be accomplished by the giver of life, by God himself. So let's examine that. We know, first of all, that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. In Psalm 2, verse 7 The Son of God is speaking prophetically, and he tells of the decree of the Father. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, what does that mean, that the Father has begotten the Son? Well, it it can't speak of the Father bringing the Son into existence, because God the Son has always been God. He's always existed. It might be speaking of the birth of Christ, on earth, but Psalm 2 is about a victorious conquering king, not about a little baby being born. Some feel that there's a coronation phrase here, the idea of Christ receiving a crown, receiving kingdoms on earth, and that makes some sense in the context of Psalm 2. But all we have to do is look to the New Testament, and the New Testament tells us precisely what it means, today I have begotten you. Acts 13, beginning in verse 32, says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It is God the Father raising Jesus Christ from the dead, such that he would be what the Bible calls the firstborn from the dead, the first man to die, to be raised, and to live forever in a glorified body. So we know that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But we also know that God the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 says that it is the Spirit who gives life. Romans 8 verse 10 says that the Spirit is life. And directly, Romans 8 verse 11 speaks of the Holy Spirit as the one who raised Jesus from the dead. So God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. God the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. That makes sense to us. God the Father, God the Spirit being involved in raising Jesus from the dead. I mean, after all, Jesus is dead. He can't do anything about this, right? Wrong. Jesus makes a radical claim on multiple occasions. Speaking of his own body, Jesus said in John 2.19, Destroy this temple and in three days I will what? Raise it up. John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
The very next verse, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Listen, Jesus didn't just predict that he would die and passively be raised from the dead. He predicted that he would die and raise himself from the dead. And this makes sense to us because he is one with the Father and one with the Spirit as part of the triune God. But this prediction of his personal involvement in his own resurrection didn't just happen when he was on earth. Isaiah already predicted it. Look with me at chapter 53, verse 10. One little phrase in the very middle of the verse. He shall prolong his days. He shall prolong his days. Meaning what? After he dies, he will live again, and he's personally involved in this. He shall prolong. This is a Hebrew verb type which expresses causing something to happen. It didn't happen to him. He caused it to happen. This is proving that Jesus Christ is God because only God can give life. And certainly only God can give life to the Son. His resurrection was his verification as the Son of God, God, very God. Romans 1.4 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verified? Absolutely. The second revelation of Jesus Christ we'll call the mobilization of Christ. The mobilization of Christ. Whenever there's serious danger somewhere in the world that could jeopardize our own national security, our government deploys our best troops. They're mobilized for action, and they're ready for this. When mankind fell into the curse of sin because of Adam and Eve and their rebellion in the Garden of Eden, God promised a coming mobilization. He promised all the way back in Genesis 3 that he would send a Savior to crush the head of Satan, to conquer sin. This Savior would be born of a woman. He would be a man And yet he would have the power to crush the second most powerful being in the universe, Satan. There's only one being that has the the power to crush Satan, and that is God himself. And so God the Father, all the way back in Genesis 3, all the way back in the garden, promised, I will mobilize a Savior. And God the Father would entrust this mission to no one except his Son, because only his Son was sinless, only his Son could provide a perfect sacrifice for sin. In fact, the most famous verse in all of the Bible speaks of this mobilization. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That's the mobilization. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this plan has been from ages past. This was not God trying to figure out what to do. This was not God saying, Oh no, there's sin here. I better come up with a second plan. This was always his plan. Ephesians 3.11 speaks of the Father's eternal purpose. It's always been his purpose. Ephesians 1.11 says that the Father's plan of salvation is, quote, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Luke 22, verse 22, said that the ministry of Jesus all the way to the cross was, quote, as it has been determined. It's a past tense verb. It's already done. It's already been determined. It's already been taken care of. And famously, Acts 2, verse 23 says that Jesus was delivered up to die, quote, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So how did he do? How did Jesus do? Would he fulfill the mission ordained by his father? Would the mobilization determined in ages past, would it be successful? 
Well, Isaiah already told us. The very end of chapter 53, verse 10, still in verse 10, look at the last phrase. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The word prosper, it's, it's a military word. It means to advance, to cut through, to break through. It's the idea of breaking through the enemy lines and overrunning the enemy. And so, yes, he would be successful. But how successful would he be? Would he take casualties? Would, would he be 75% successful, 80% successful? John 6.37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's 100% success. John 17.6, The Lord Jesus prayed to his Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. That's 100% success. Two verses earlier, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. 100% success. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the death of death. It's the beginning of life. For all who would believe, God's will, according to Isaiah 10, and according now to the history recorded in the Gospels, God's will shall be wildly successful in the hands of our capable Lord Jesus. We could see a third revelation of the risen Christ. We'll call this one, this one the replication of Christ. The replication of Christ. The goal of redemptive history is not to create more angel-like creatures who have no concept of redemption or salvation or forgiveness. The goal of redemptive history is to redeem mankind, to restore mankind, to make us, those who are already made in the image of God, back into those who could say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. There is a glory to salvation that angels can never really understand. They can't grasp this. The concepts of rebellion and redemption and changing a human rebel into a worshiper is called by Peter things into which angels long to look. They, they understand to a certain degree and they certainly affirm it and they worship God because of our redemption but they'll never understand what it was like to be lost and now be found. And by the way, there are fallen angels and there is no record in all of the Bible of God offering salvation to them. It is only to humanity, to those made in his image. So the goal of redemptive history is to purchase lost souls, those who are marred and flawed and stained in the image of God because we ruined ourselves with sin. And now to transform them into people to be just like Christ, to be replicas of Christ. Romans 8.29 tells us that the goal of salvation is, quote, to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's a promise for you. 1 John 3.2 says that when we see Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ on earth now. This is what we're here for. We're to learn of Christ through his word so that we can become more and more like him. Here's the purpose of the church. It's in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The great playwright Oscar Wilde wrote... Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. 
In other words, having millions upon millions upon millions of Christ imitators for all eternity populating the streets of heaven. This brings glory and honor and praise and laud to the Savior because there's so many like him. And Jesus will successfully replicate himself in the perfected, sinless character of the redeemed. It's it's like a father who now has children who look like him and who act like him. But Isaiah already told us this. Still in verse 10, he says in the middle of the verse, he shall see his offspring. He shall see literally his seed. Those who come after him, those who are like him, those who are made in his image, those who replicate him, those who are like him in every way possible. Now, when it says he shall see, this is an imperfect verb, which means something is continuing to happen. It continues to this day. It's not just the soldiers executing Jesus to whom Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They're not the only recipients. It's not just those who personally met Jesus while he was on earth. They're not the only recipients of his grace. It's not just the Jews who believe in Christ. It's not just the Gentiles who believe in Christ. It is Adam and Eve and Abel, the entire line of Seth, Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the descendants of who had true saving faith in God, who forgives sin. It is the mystery king Melchizedek all the way back in Genesis. It's all the Gentiles who worship the true and the living God who came out of paganism, Gentiles like Ruth and and Rahab and others. It's all of those who have come to faith by the preaching of the apostles after the life of Christ and by the preaching of those whom the apostles trained and those whom the apostles trained, trained. And those are the next generation and the next and the next. It's all who in this year will profess faith in Christ. All next year who will profess faith in Christ. All the way up to the time when, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, the church is removed from the earth. And during that seven-year period, there will be yet another chance. And more people will come to faith in Christ. And after that seven-year period, there will be another thousand-year period. And yet more people and more people and more people will come to faith in Christ. This is grace that just doesn't end. Why? Because he shall see his offspring. Many of them. We are the ones that I read about in verse 6. That are the straying sheep. But now we're returned as children. We're returned as offspring. Those like Christ now. It's interesting to me that Acts 11.26 records that in Antioch. The followers of Christ were first called, the, the Greek is Christianos, singular, Christianus, plural. This is Christ in Greek with a diminutive suffix, meaning little Christs. We say it in English, Christians. We're little Christs. This isn't a claim to deity, of course. It's just that the, the sinless, eternal human nature of Jesus Christ will be replicated in his followers. That's the goal of salvation, is to make you like him. Because imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It is worship. Here's a fourth revelation of the risen Christ. We could call the dedication of Christ. The dedication of Christ. How dedicated is he to your salvation? Acts chapter 1 records that after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven in full view of his disciples, marking the first time in human history that a resurrected human being entered into heaven. And what is he doing there? Romans 8.34, 
says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The, the ascension of Christ was now the end of his self-limitation on earth. It was his return all the way to glory. It was the beginning of Christ's new ministry now. It's a ministry which goes on to this day, a ministry of intercession and advocacy. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. 1 John 2.1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a defender. This marked the time now that Jesus would send the Holy Spirit to indwell and to empower believers. It marked the time when Jesus would give gifts of men to men to lead the church of Jesus Christ. And it marked the time, according to John 14, that he would prepare our heavenly home. And his ascension, by the way, anticipated his return. The angels who appeared there told the disciples, basically, this is the Steve Swartz paraphrase, why are you looking up like idiots? He's coming back exactly the same way. The way you saw him go is the way he's coming. And so it's very appropriate that the final word, the last word we hear about Christ in Isaiah 53 concerns this ministry of intercession. The end of verse 12 says, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. To make intercession... This is a verb, which it's a legal verb. It, it means to, to plead in court. It's a begging. It's a pleading your case before the Father. And it is the Lord Jesus who pleads your case. Based on what? Based on his death on the cross, based on his resurrection, and based on your profession of faith, based on coming to him with nothing but your sin and a desire for forgiveness. As a matter of fact, the Lord Jesus got a jump on his ministry of intercession even before he went to the cross. He was praying for his disciples, and in one of the very rare instances in which the Bible, in the Bible in which you personally appear in the Bible, Jesus continued in prayer after praying for his disciples, and he said in John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Four verses later, he prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Jesus prayed for you that you would be in heaven to see his glory. How many times does Jesus get what he asks for in prayer? Every time. He's fully dedicated to the completion of your redemption. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. John 6.39, Jesus said, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is really, really important for us, because every time we look in the mirror, we get a reminder that we're hurtling toward a grave. We get a reminder that every one of us will breathe a last breath. The number of beats that your heart will make has been predetermined according to Psalm 139, and there will be a last one. There will be a moment where you do face eternity. And so it's really important for us to know just how dedicated is Christ to my salvation. He's fully dedicated. We put it this way, the Lord Jesus never starts something that he won't finish. Speaking of future Gentile believers, 
which Jesus calls his other sheep. That's us. Jesus said in John 10, 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. That when you breathe your last and you hear the voice of the Lord saying, come up here, you will be safe. The dedication of Christ is complete. There's a fifth revelation of the risen Christ. We could call this the compensation of Christ. The compensation of Christ. Now, contrary to popular Christian thought, God's love for you was a secondary motivation to the larger, bigger, more vast motivation of the entire plan of redemption. The, the, the vast and the primary motivation is for God to bring glory and fame and renown to himself. He's the focus of all glory. In Jesus' great high priestly prayer that we've already referenced in John 17, he begins his prayer in this closed inner Trinitarian circle. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. That's the purpose of redemptive history. Second Peter 1.17 says that God the Father gives glory and honor to Christ. And the heavenly voices of billions upon trillions cry out to the resurrected Jesus. In Revelation 5, they are saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Where are you in that? You're the one saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor. The Lord Jesus Christ from the foundation of the world was going to receive glory and honor in the form of compensation for his full and total obedience to submit to his father's plan. What was this compensation? What was the payment? What could God receive? What what could he get? You ready for this? You. You are his compensation. You are the reward that Christ receives, not because you are so worth it, but because he made you so worth it. Your your salvation isn't about so much about giving Christ to you. It's God the Father giving you to Christ as worshipers to exalt him forever. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus endured the cross, quote, for the joy that was set before him, This is joy, same as Christian joy, by the way. This is joy that's rooted in the fact that something better is going to happen. Therefore, I can endure something terrible now. That the current pain of the cross, as appalling, as horrific, as ghastly as that is, there's no comparison to the coming benefit, to the coming reward. John 6, 37, Jesus called you all that the Father gives him. You are the gift of the Father to the Son. Ephesians 4.8 says that when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives. This is the language of a conquering general now having a whole new people. We are the captives of Christ. We're captive to his saving love, captive to his grace, captive to his mercy, captive to his kindness to lavish blessing and joy upon us in forever forgiveness. But again, Isaiah has already shown us the compensation of Christ. Look with me at the beginning of verse 12 of chapter 53. The beginning of this verse says, Because of Christ's faithfulness to bear the sins of many, 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is God the Father speaking. Because of the faithfulness of Christ all to the plan of redemption all the way to the cross, as Philippians 2 speaks of, something now is going to happen to the servant. Something is going to happen to the Messiah, to Christ. Now, on the surface, when we first read this, it appears that Jesus is simply going to divide his prize with others. Therefore, I divide him a portion with the many. That's not what this text is talking about now. This isn't the idea of of Christ getting a portion of anything, getting a slice of the pie. This is the idea of Christ receiving the rewards, and that reward is a people. In fact, we can render that verse... I will apportion to him the many, and the strong he will apportion as spoil. Who is the strong? It's you. You've been made strong in Christ, and now you will be the gift. You will be the prize. You will be the spoil. You're the bounty that's given to him. And the servant has received all those whom he died to save. Let me put it this way. In the act of resurrecting all of the saved someday, Jesus Christ will literally raise for himself a kingdom. And that's you, and that's me. A kingdom made up of those formerly dead in trespasses and sins, those who formerly were enemies of God. It's no wonder that Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 says that the angels are shown the manifold wisdom of God through the church. Let me put it to you in human terms. One angel looking at another one and saying, you see that guy right there who's singing the praises of God before the throne of the Almighty? I saw him on earth. He was a jerk. I didn't like him. See that lady right there? She made everybody miserable. You remember how, how in those years before she got saved, her whole family hated her guts. Remember her? And look at her now. She's praising God. She's new. She's, she's brand new. And the other angel saying, I, I, I don't understand that. I praise God for it, but I, I don't understand that. You are the university of God to the angels to teach them what grace is. But here's irony for you. You weren't worth dying for until Jesus died for you. You weren't worth it. But he died for you to make, him like, make you like himself. You are the compensation to Christ. Countless millions upon millions of people who will worship and adore and obey and love and cherish and exalt Christ for all eternity. There's a sixth revelation of the risen Christ embedded in this text. We'll call this one the vindication of Christ. The vindication of Christ. The mention of Jesus Christ to the non-Christian today will engender everything from pity on us poor religious weaklings Oh, I'm sorry, you need that crutch of religion. You have to go on Sunday mornings, and I'm sorry about that. The other end of that spectrum, probably we experience more and more today, is just the sheer rage toward anyone naming the name of Christ. The world is hurtling toward judgment at the hands of the very one that they mock, though. What do we say as Christians? Well, the Christian simply says what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, The Bible says that he is the second member of the triune God. He is fully God. The Bible says he is the fullness of God and he is the fullness of mankind. He is fully God, fully human. 
The Bible says that he's returning someday, bringing his judgment with him. The Bible says that the first time Jesus came, he came in meekness and in humility and in smallness. The first time Jesus came, you could hold him in your arms. But the Bible also says that he's coming a second time. The first time he came to offer himself for sins, the second time he's coming, he's coming to offer you for your sins if you don't receive him. That you will no longer have a sacrifice. All who would reject Christ when he comes a second time will be condemned to an eternity in the fires of hell. And you might say, well, I don't believe that. Whether you believe it or not is irrelevant. Say, I don't believe in electricity and then stick a paperclip in an outlet. Your belief makes no difference. It's going to happen. He's coming to take what is rightfully his. What is rightfully his? Everything. And so he's coming to take it back. And today, Christians are considered idiots. The world has successfully transformed the fact of the resurrection of Christ into a marketable holiday without actually understanding that the implication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that all the mockers one day will be silenced when they realize that those idiot Christians were all right, that we were right. The truth about Christ has always been available. This isn't a mystery. It's always been available through the scriptures, but now it'll be too late. They did not believe, but now they will. And what they did not believe by faith, now they'll believe by sight, and it'll be too late. There will be no more denigrations of Christ. There will be no more making fun of Christians. There will be no more shouts of Allah Akbar. Those will be gone. Psalm 2 says that the kings of the earth set themselves against God. You know how God replies? He laughs. It's one of three times in the Bible that God laughs, and it's always at sinners. Seriously? You really think you're going to challenge me? Verse 5 of Psalm 2 says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And in verse 9, God the Father gives a commission. He gives a mission to God the Son concerning the rebellious kings of the earth. Here's the mission. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But Isaiah has already proclaimed the coming vindication of Christ. Look with me in chapter 52, the last verse. Chapter 52, the last verse. It begins by speaking of the atonement to those who were saved, so shall he sprinkle many, na many nations. But now it turns very serious. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. This speaks of a day when the kings of the earth, kings who are not accustomed to being silenced and certainly not accustomed to being silenced, will bow in submission to King Messiah. They will not have a choice. This word for shutting of the mouth, this is a word that speaks of silence based in shock, based in immediate respect, immediate deference. It is the, the, the world's most giant, oh no, of all time. The kings will bow to the king of all the kings. To the kings of the earth, the heavenly decree will go out, silence, you will be quiet. That before Christ, the mouths of the greatest of all humanity are closed. But what is it that will silence them? What is this heavenly decree? 
It's some truth about the servant, about Jesus Christ that has now dawned on them. They're seeing something they haven't been told. They're understanding something they haven't heard. This is the real truth about Jesus Christ. These are the kings that thought, well, he's a nice myth. Interesting character at Christmas. But far from being just a baby in the manger to be remembered warmly at Christmas time, he is now the one to whom mankind must bow. The rulers of earth will realize their grave miscalculation. Their mouths will be closed at the majesty of the coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, Jesus said, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The knees of the kings of earth will knock. The mouths of the kings of the earth will be closed. Revelation 6 says that the kings of the earth will hide themselves in caves, saying, quote, Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, that is, Jesus Christ. Romans 3 says that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. How far-fetched is the human fantasy that a person could reason with God? That you could say, Oh, you know, when I die, I'll, I'll stand before God and we'll, we'll have a chat and we'll, we'll talk things through. And, and he'll understand that that time, remember that time, God, that I helped that little old lady across the street? And, and I, I went to church two, three times a year without fail. And I did this and I did that. Can I ask you a question? Whatever gives you the impression God's going to let you talk? Where, where did you get that? It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says every mouth will be closed. Revelation 20 is the picture of the great white throne judgment where Jesus Christ opens the book of the sins of all those who have rebelled against him. And there's only one person speaking. And it's God. Every mouth will be closed. There's only one defense attorney in heaven. And that is the Lord Jesus himself. And for him to defend you, you have to admit to him that you have no defense that you have no excuse, that you have no righteousness, that you have no good deeds. You have to admit to him what Isaiah says later in the book, that your so-called good deeds are like filthy rags. You must admit to him that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, because he will be vindicated, and your opinion on the matter is irrelevant. He will be vindicated. There's a seventh revelation of the risen Christ, we'll call the domination of Christ. The domination of Christ. The kings of the earth will shut their mouths because they'll be ousted, they'll be denigrated. Chapter 52, verse 13, says that Christ, there's a a threefold phrase here, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. The great 19th century Old Testament scholar uh, Franz Delich, he suggests that this threefold exaltation is speaking of Christ's resurrection, his ascension, and the fact that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And, and Christ has been exalted in those ways. But it has to go much further than that. A couple of reasons. First of all, there's nothing in the text here that says that that particularly is the exaltation of Christ. It's more accurate to say that this exaltation of Christ is the result of his resurrection. It can't happen without his resurrection. How do we know this? Well, let me do a little literary structure lecture with you here for a moment. 
The text of Isaiah 52, 13, all the way to the end of chapter 53, is structured in the very common Hebrew form in which the middle section is the main point. What's the main point here? The main point is chapter 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgression. Chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on this the iniquity of us all. That's the most important part. It's right in the middle. But this particular Hebrew structure mirrors itself in that as you work your way outward from the middle, the parts up here mirror the parts down here as you go toward the end. In other words, it is self-interpreting. That if you want to know what a part three-fourths of the way through says, you look back at what the part one-fourth of the way through says, and it tells you. So this declaration he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's at the beginning of the text. What does the end of the text say? The mirror that interprets this. It says that he will see his offspring. Many will be accounted righteous. That there, there will be a kingdom for him and for all who believe in him. In other words, the exaltation of Christ, he'll be high, lifted up, exalted. It's still in the future. It hasn't happened yet. This must be speaking of a future domination of being high, being lifted up, being exalted. So how do we understand the future domination of Christ? Well, it's more clearly explained in other texts. Psalm 2, verse 8. God the Father says to God the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God never rents anything. He owns it all. Revelation 19 pictures Jesus right before his second coming. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now, this is interesting figurative language. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Obviously, this is metaphorical in nature, but this is speaking of the power of the Son of God to kill his enemies with a word. And the Lord Jesus will use that power to kill with a word. Zechariah 14 tells of the coming return of the Messiah to the earth when the nations are indeed raging against him. And here's how he kills with a word. Zechariah 14 verse 12 says, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. In other words, when the Lord Jesus speaks the word of judgment, it will happen so fast that you'll see living bones still standing up before they clatter to the ground. Verse 9 of Zechariah 14 says that on that day, the Lord will be king over all the earth. You don't believe me? Hang around and find out. The domination of the Lord is what the Bible frequently calls the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Joel 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The same chapter, 20 verses later. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Joel three sixteen says, on that day the Lord will roar. Amos 1, verse 2 says, on that day the Lord roars. 
Zephaniah 1, 14 and 15 says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The domination of Christ is coming, and we must be found in him. The Bible warns that for the one who has not placed his faith in Christ, that day is coming sooner than you think. Obadiah, verse 15, says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. Now, someone might say, I'd like to talk about human free will. I want the chance to just make my choice. I don't want anybody choosing anything for me. There's not a choice involved here. You want to talk about human free will? You can have all the esoteric conversations and debates you want. You can go to Starbucks and buy really, really expensive, mediocre coffee and debate all you want. But here's what's going to happen because of Christ's faithfulness to go all the way to the cross to pay for the sins of all who would believe on him. This is what's going to happen. Philippians 2 tells us, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want to talk about choice? You have two options concerning the domination of Christ. Option one, reject his offer of forgiveness and you will be excluded from heaven's book of life. Revelation 20 says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Option two, receive his offer of forgiveness of your sin and he will include you into what 1 Peter 1 calls an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And this is the offer that Jesus himself made that you could stand before him and, and he'll say this, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Well, Isaiah 53 gives us these revelations of Jesus Christ. So far, we've seen the verification of Christ, the mobilization of Christ, the replication of Christ, the dedication of Christ, the compensation of Christ, the vindication of Christ, and the domination of Christ. I saved my favorite for last. We'll call this one the jubilation of Christ. The jubilation of Christ. Do you think that if you're forgiven and you come into heaven after your death, that Jesus is going to say, well, I guess I'm glad you're here. It's not what the Bible says. For all who would receive Christ's free gift of forgiveness by believing that you're a sinner in desperate need of mercy, mercy of grace, the Lord Jesus celebrates and he exalts over you. And we've already seen this in Isaiah. Look with me at chapter 53, verse 11. It says concerning the Lord Jesus that out of the anguish of his soul, that's his death, that's, that's all that he went through, that's all the torture, all of the humiliation, all the pain, all the anguish, all the, 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 the death, the, the, the rejection by God on the cross. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
the price of the anguish of his soul, of the leaving the, the glory of heaven to become a man in order to live and to minister and to suffer and to die and to be raised, it, it will have been worth it. It will have been worth it. Could I give just a little side note here? God saving you is not primarily about satisfying you. God saving you is primarily about satisfying God. Giving Him satisfaction. It's about the fulfillment of all things in God's redemptive plan. Satan is defeated from his hold on mankind. Sin is defeated in its guilt-producing power. Death is defeated in its 100% stranglehold on humanity. And, and the curse of sin is defeated through the work of Christ when he redeems all things, including creation, by, by the way, to, to himself. And when the Son of God, at the end of all things, is seated on the throne of new Jerusalem, on new earth, in new heaven, seeing the countless glorious worshipers streaming in and out of the city on the streets of gold, bringing the wealth and the treasure of new earth as a sweet offering, an entire earth filled with nothing but joy and peace and sinlessness and love for the Lord. That is satisfaction. And it is the satisfaction of God that's the sum and the entire purpose of all things. How satisfied is Christ? He experiences satisfaction that leads to jubilation. One of the most stunning verses in the entire Bible, I've said it many times and I'll speak of it many more times. You don't have to turn here, but I just want to tell you about it. This verse tells of Jesus Christ and what he does when he returns to earth and has judged his enemies and and all is well now and he's gathered all of his people to himself. There's one verse that tells us something that he does. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst. This is Messiah returned to earth now with all of his people, all the saved ones gathered around him. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Did you hear what the Lord Jesus is going to do in his jubilation over you? You who were so unworthy, now transformed into those who are worthy. First, he'll rejoice over you with gladness. This speaks of being exceedingly glad over the object of your affection. In fact, it's a Hebrew word that means, if you can picture Jesus doing this, it means to leap for joy. To leap for joy. Second, he will quiet you by his love. No more fear, no more sin, no more condemnation, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more anguish, no more death, no more worry, no more anxiety, no more pain. This is the Savior quieting all the troubles you've ever had. Doing something one last time that he'll never do again, and that is wiping the final tears from your eyes. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. There's a third thing he'll do. He'll exult over you. Exult has two connotations in Hebrew. It means, first of all, to shout for joy. And it also means to dance a circular dance. It's the idea of here is the object of my affection. And I am so excited over you that I'm literally dancing circles around you as I shout in joy. But that's not all. He'll exult over you with loud singing. And we talk about singing to God. Did it ever occur to you that God will sing to you? 
This is the jubilation of Christ, having come to earth as a mere man, having been tortured and beaten and humiliated, nailed to a cross, and having borne the wrath of God for you, now having been raised from the dead, right at this moment, interceding for you, keeping your salvation secure, keeping you firmly in his hand, that when you're finally united with Christ, when you see him face to face that first time, how jubilant he will be. You think you're going to be happy to see him? He's going to be even happier to see you. He paid so dearly for this moment. He rejoices over you. He quiets you with his love. He shouts and dances over you, and he sings at the top of his lungs over you. It's a, it's a word that means on account of you, because of you. Now, if you say, I'm not worthy of that sort of rejoicing, then you are the very one that God will save. Because the one who says, I think I am worthy, is the one who's not. He will only save the one who would some humbly say, I'm not worthy of the love of God. I receive it only by his kindness and favor. Well, Isaiah 53 certainly tells of the death of Christ. Have I convinced you that it tells us of the resurrection of Christ as well? It's saturated in the resurrection and the victory of our Lord. We don't want to leave her there. We left poor Mary Magdalene weeping at the tomb of Jesus. But when she stood weeping, the embedded prophecy of Isaiah 53 of the resurrection of Christ had just been fulfilled. And when Mary stooped down to look in the tomb, the body of Jesus wasn't there. And a moment later, she turned to a man who called her name and said, Mary. And she fell upon the risen Lord Jesus. Won't you fall upon the mercy and grace of the risen Lord Jesus while there is time? Fall on his mercy. Our Father, we thank you and bless you for our risen Lord. We would do our best to endeavor to give him all the glory and honor and laud and praise that is due to his name all the might and the power that is rightly his. And so, Lord, we would ask your blessing on this time. Let the word of God sink its nails deeply into our hearts such that we never forget the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in a certain sense, Lord, while we enjoy celebrating this once a year, we meet every Lord's Day, every Sunday, to remember the resurrection. This is the day that he was raised. This is the day that our hope was now secured. And Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who's here or who is listening to this message for whom it's not too late. I pray that they would this very day repent of their sin. I pray that this would be the day when they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would take upon themselves the, the offer that Jesus has made to pay for their sins. For Lord, they will be held accountable for all the times they heard this offer made and did not respond. I pray that this would be the day that they would respond and say yes to the risen Lord because of your grace and your kindness to call Holy Spirit open their hearts so that they might hear and believe so that they might see the risen Savior for who he is so that he could be their Savior and not their judge. Lord, we praise you for all those in our midst that you have saved. We ask you, Lord, to bless their hearts and to 
transform them more and more into the image of the Son of God as these truths sink deeply into our souls and into our minds and come out in our behavior and in our actions and in our words and in our thoughts even. Lord, we praise you for Christ. We give him all glory. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.